Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. How do you discover that you are a good entrepreneur or that you even like being a good entrepreneur? Does a PhD help one be a good entrepreneur? In today's Remix episode, we talk to two young successful entrepreneurs, one who is in industry and one who is a faculty member in academia. Our first guest is Sudeh Farokhi, entrepreneur and founder of successful startups in Iran and in Canada. She's currently vice president at Nakisa. She grew up in Iran. Our second guest is Fadil Adib, who is a professor of electrical engineering and computer science at MIT. He grew up in Lebanon. This is a remix episode. You can find the original full interviews with Sudeh Farokhi and Fadil Adib in episodes 9, 10, and 11 of this podcast. This next act, the entrepreneur gene and discovering it and not always knowing that you're an entrepreneur at heart until you've already become one. Up first, the journey of Sudeh Farooqi's transition from studying while working to actually founding a startup in Iran and realizing that she had unconsciously become an entrepreneur. Let me get back to uh, my, my bachelor. So 2003, 2000. And 2008, I finished my bachelor, so it was five years, intense study. I couldn't work and I even didn't uh, think didn't think that time that I can work in parallel uh, because like bachelor um, semesters are, are really heavy. And then you need, the, you need a degree to start, you know, going and uh, exploring job opportunities. So beginning of my master, while I step into master, um, I started to work in telecommunication um, space in a company and uh, so in parallel I was finishing my master and I was studying uh, uh, and I was working the first time uh, and, and it was excellent opportunity and also very challenging you know as a, as a woman <laughs> stepping into a workforce in STEM and, and the, of course the workforce was uh, male dominated we were in a private company and, and the quality of uh, colleagues in terms of the education was really high uh, but still I was like feeling the pressure and that you know that's kind of more more male around the, the table in a meeting and, and, and so forth. 2008 to 2011 I was um, working at that, at that company I was actually working with my husband at the same company and the same group I was managing him at some point etc so there are a lot of back and forth uh, in terms of you know the the strategies uh, we kind of built together and uh, challenges that I faced uh, because I was promoted to a product manager and team lead so I was managing seven engineers all male and I was pretty young you know uh, 25 six at that time so uh, a lot of a lot of things that I learned actually for my leadership 
at that time. And then it was like four years in that uh, um, um, company. I was learning a lot, beginning of it. And then I stepped into my comfort zone when I feel, wow, I have a very good status. I had a good salary. I know what to do. It's very comfortable for me to go uh, to work and, you know, do what, what I'm very good at. And, and that is the time for me that I, as an individual and as an ambitious person, I, I push myself. I, I kind of push myself out of my comfort zone. And that was the time that um, I was finishing also the, the master. So I was like the, the, the latest years of the master. I had research on service-oriented architecture and enterprise architecture. That was like the, the, the research that I was working on. And there were like three other uh, classmates dash friends, uh, including my husband, that we were, uh, we were working with the same prof, the same field, and um, we, we didn't have any idea of entrepreneurship, nothing. And uh, we were just kind of, I would say, considered to be um, expert in that domain in Iran at that time, because SOA was a big deal uh, in theory. And, and we were kind of thinking, oh, well, how we can use this maybe in, in industry, because nobody is working on it in a commercial uh, manner, right? And um, four of us came together at like a friendly gathering and we, we thought, you know what, how about thinking of like making a, uh, either a spin-off or industrial-research lab, we were calling it, and uh, we work on projects and we take projects from other enterprises and we, and we kind of try to establish this as a, we are the first one uh, for the SOA in Iran, right? And um, we were, we were interested, all of us, and we said, all right, so let's go to our prof. That was a well-known uh, professor at the uh, service-oriented, like the number one, I would say, from Shahid Beshti. And we said, uh, we have this idea. Uh, would you be able to support us or what do you think? And um, he, he also got excited. He said, well, this is a very nice idea. And, and he's very credible in the domain. So he said, I can sponsor you guys. Uh, so you start working on it. Uh, you establish it. I will provide the uh, the font, and I'll provide you the even the location because you can work on like there is an office here. You can this is univer this is Shahid University, right? And uh, I I quit my job. I quitted my job the week after, and uh, all of the other folks they said we're gonna stay part time, but I quitted my job, and I, I was like the one staying full time in the in the lab that office. And I got the equipment, I got the server, you know, and think of, okay, what would be the, the services we offer, the material we prepared, the website, like everything from ground up. We started to build the name, the branding, everything. But, and, and that feeling of, wow, you're creating something from scratch. You are building it on your own. The vision is yours. The, the, the way that you provide the services is your idea. And the way do you deliver it, again, it's your, your plan. You go and talk to potential customers. And we, we were not thinking about money. And that's like the, the fundraising part of it was, was out. And it was a serious company. And um, I, I enjoyed it so much. And that was actually the first time that I felt that wow, this is the, I, I'm entrepreneur in heart. And uh, I was not thinking this is entrepreneurship because I was not intending to be an entrepreneur or something. Like this was like by nature, and you know. And um, this is 2012. So we were working on it. We were loving it. We were like having so much fun. Four friends 
working in a company and uh, we had a lot of good exposure because we were the first one, right? We were getting um, great projects, very well-paid job. And, um, and, and it was not comparable with the previous previous job, although we were so happy on the other one. But uh, the, other, the other folks also joined us uh, full-time because the situation was going very well. And we were getting a lot of projects. We couldn't handle it. We had, um, you know, meetings with very top-notch people in Iran, and they were, like, kind of uh, talking about us in terms of the services that we offer. And MIT professor Fadel Ladeep talks about his creative origins and his first steps to research. Um, I want to ask about your first steps into research. Did you get involved with research at uh, AUB in your undergrad? Yeah, I remember... Uh, I always wanted to do something that is new and different. So I knew that I liked creating new things even when I was uh, very young. So this realm of invention. And when I got to undergrad, I was like, huh, finally, we can do something that is different. We can do something that is possibly inventive. And I realized that the way to do that is by doing research. So I, uh, uh, one of my uh, professors had just moved actually from, he had just joined the university. He had just moved from, in, he was in the US in, at Intel. And he had just moved back to Lebanon. And in my spring semester of the very first year, he asked me if I wanted to do research and I just jumped on it. So in my first year, I started doing research with him and I continued doing that uh, throughout my, um, my undergraduate degree. What helps one be a good entrepreneur? Did the PhD help our guests? We switch the order of the narrators in this next act. First up, I ask Fadil Adib, professor at MIT, and he talks about why students doing research should also think of entrepreneurship. So I want to ask a question about, um, well, I guess academia versus industry, but in a slightly different way. So you have a, you've had a significant success with commercializing some of your research results. Uh, nowadays, um, even grad students, as when they're in their PhD programs, sometimes uh, they think of, oh, you know, should I open source this? Should I spend the extra amount of energy and effort and time on making this code, you know, less research code and like more open source code? And then, of course, as faculty members, we already have a lot of very busy lives teaching and doing research. And then doing entrepreneurial activities is an even higher overhead on that. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on that, um, you know, how you managed uh, the commercialization and entrepreneurialization of your technologies. Yeah. So one thing to keep, the one thing that I'm thinking about always is we're not publishing for just for the sake of getting papers. In fact, we spend so, in systems, we spend so much time building a system. Usually what about... Um, I mean, it could be anywhere between at least six months, really on the short end, but more of the, most of the time, it's at least a year, it's of the order of a year and a half, right? Building a system. Do you really want that thing that you built to be a paper that maybe someone's gonna pick up, maybe someone's gonna do something with it? Or do you want, or do you want it to have a lot of impact? This year and a half that you spent on something, do you want it to try to have uh, impact so it can change the world? Why did you do this in the first place? So for me, when I was doing my PhD, um, 
I so first off, I had to build the thing to make it actually work, and people did not believe that it worked. So we had to build a demo and have people come over. And I'm I was a bit entrepreneurial in nature, so I already I started thinking and telling my advisor, look, we need to start a company based on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she she also believed uh, in that as well. And so we spent a lot of time refining it and showing it to people and every time improving it. And in fact, when I was doing my job interviews, I took my device to each of my 16 interviews and every single time I tested it live. And so people could really like falsify me. If it's not, we are, if you think this is not gonna work, you're gonna be able to see it there that it's not working. And for me, that was important. It was important to show, let people believe that it is actually working in this environment where there's so many other people and I'm trying to sort of uh, do the sensing. Did it work uh, every one of those 16 times? It did. It did actually. I mean, it worked in the in the White House when he demoed it to President Obama. So it should work after. We wouldn't have showed it back then. Uh, and that's yet another story, uh, actually, that I'd be happy to to share. Um, yeah, please, please, please talk about that experience too. Yes. So what happened is the whole the whole uh, way in which in, in which we were invited to the White House is um, we were I was. We were interested in commercializing the technology. We participated. MIT has this entrepreneurial entrepreneurial competition. The first year we participated, we made it only to the semifinals. The second year we made it to the finals. Hmm. And so we were picked up by this group that nominated us to go to the White House. And we had to do a, a demo. And we were not sure if we were going to do it to, to President Obama at the time. Hmm. Um, and so we take uh, we take our device, we fly to DC, we set it up uh, the the day before in the hotel in the hotel lobby, and uh, sort of one of the people I was working with was like, "Oh, it feels like Mission Impossible, like you're setting up, and then tomorrow we're going to the White House." Anyway, then we go in, and when you go to the White House, you have to go through so many different layers of security, and the dogs really sniffed out the wires, like they pulled it apart. It's a research prototype. <laughs> Yeah. So we go in, we set it up, it's not working. Of course it's not working, like the dogs really pulled it apart. And so we have about three hours before someone steps in and it could be the president. And everybody starts and I'm like, it works. I know it works. I've tested it and I know it works. So I keep sort of trying to debug it and trying all the knobs that I know how to debug. It's like, there's two hours left, it's not working. There's one hour left, There's not. it's not working. There's like 30 minutes left, it's not working. And about 10 minutes before... Uh, uh, people start walking in is when it starts working, and I tested it, and I tested it a few times. It's just a bunch of loose connections hmm. at the time that I really need to find where all of these are. So it's like research; you just have to do it in three hours, hmm. uh, and then it worked well. And he was actually quite surprised that it worked uh, um, that it worked that well. Uh, where I, I was actually the subject of the demo, and I showed that this wireless device that is in there was could monitor my breathing and heart rate without touching my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was not very concerned. I mean, I knew if it didn't work, I would know how to make it work without having to change anything in it. So every, whenever I had an interview, I would go in the morning, I would test it out in that setup. I would just make sure that it is working and then I would uh, sort of uh, leave it there. And to be honest, even if it doesn't work that well, people know it's a research prototype that you're trying to demo in real, uh, in real life. And that's what I tell my students now. So we now invest every single project that we're thinking about. Something I mean, a lot of our projects are moonshot ideas. So, our but eventually we want it to have impact. So we try a crazy idea. If it works, great. 
Uh, if uh, um, it doesn't work, we try to pivot quickly, but then we build on it. So we, we write the paper, but then we're building this demo. We also create a video about it because we're building these physical things. And so we usually also create videos about it that can help us talk about it. And then we, this building good work allows us to build on top of it. One of the hardest things in research is, do you build something and are you able to build yet another system on top of it? And if you build a really robust system, then you are able to build on top of it. And sometimes we open source our code. Like for example, a lot of our code on Ocean IoT, uh, we are open sourcing all of that because there's so much scientific value in it. And we did. We don't just open source the code. We also open source the schematics. We also write step-by-step -step tutorials because people need to know. I mean, this is interdisciplinary work. People are coming from different backgrounds to try to build it. If we want our work to have impact and go beyond just a paper, um, how do you do that? The way is you need to really push it all the way, uh, wherever that is. I mean, sometimes it could be through deployment. Uh, maybe not every paper is gonna is gonna do that, but we strive to do that with every paper because really that's what maximizes the impact. And sometimes people might think that oh, what matters is the number of papers, or uh, what matters is the the number of citations. The number of citations might be a good metric. The number of papers is never a good metric. Uh, it's, I mean, if someone has, I don't know, 80 papers versus 100 papers or 20 papers, what I care about in, is in what way have these people changed the world? Uh, that's what matters. Yeah, that's very beautifully put. And, and an almost heart-stopping experience in the White House, but it seemed like it worked out in the end. Um, I guess the, the my takeaways from that experience were, be prepared if you're doing a live demo of any kind be prepared uh, well ahead of time uh, but then also uh, kind of know your system in depth so that you're confident that if something goes wrong you can you have a plan b and a plan c absolutely and so there faroki founder of multiple startups talks about how her phd which she did in between her two startups in iran and canada helped her mature and be a more mature entrepreneur a slightly different uh, perspective question. So you did a PhD and then you you know went back to being an entrepreneur. Do you feel like the PhD or doing the PhD actually helped you be a better entrepreneur? <clears throat> it's a question that I get a lot, Indy, and and actually it's a it's a very powerful question. I would say it helped me not for the degree, not for the degree. The degree is good, you know, you have a PhD there, but it's not like moving the dial what what it changed in me i think there were a lot of a few a few bold characteristics that i can say it helped me be a better entrepreneur number one is how i manage uncertainty in my view the best entrepreneurs are the one that they can handle uncertainty and they can make decision when they don't have enough input when they don't have enough clarity of the situation, they need to make a call and go ahead. And then if the situation change and they figure out new information, they are they need to accept the 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 problem, the issue, the failure, mm -hmm. and they start over. That managing uncertainty for a PhD for me, because I started my PhD, didn't have any topic, was very difficult for me to to start building that topic. And I figured out through collaboration with a few postdocs from other universities. And when I managed to understand what's the uh, path for me to research, I 
I was so successful in writing strong papers, proving very innovative ideas and, and so forth. So number one, managing uncertainty. I think that international networking and communication, it's not necessarily a characteristic of PhD students, but I did it well throughout the uh, conferences that I went. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very nice that we actually met in conference, mm-hmm. right? Yes. At, uh, you know, uh, back, to, back to the PhD, you were the educator, of course, era that I passed. And I was so delighted that I met you <laughs> in a conference. So that was just in parentheses. That presentation, I think it also helped me to be comfortable presenting to to uh, to group of people that sometimes they were like over 100 at that time. That was like, you are young and you are presenting your idea and you are the expert in that field. Because you are an expert, you gain the confidence to speak about it, to present it. And that's also very important. And that the storytelling, what's the story of your PhD? What's the story of your research? Because you go to a networking event in a conference right. and you are presenting and you need to, you know, have like elevator pitch that we had in the uh, startup world. Right. So I, I learned that as well there. In uh, And of course, all of it is English, right? Because my previous experience was totally in Persian and it was like a different uh, different group of people, different mindset, etc. And then the another aspect that I wanna wanna say was that um, the attitude of get things done on your own and in a way started to kind of build self-motivation for finishing your work and go ahead, even if there are not that many milestones. But you build milestones through the, 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 you know, conferences that you want to publish your papers, the deadlines that you need to meet, and the peer reviews that you receive and you need to have your judgment on, on, on changing it. I think those, all of those helped me also to kind of getting stronger in that attitude of get things done, have a good judgment and uh, improve, improve my work. And of course, I focus on practical research versus theoretical. And that was also helpful for me because I was leading the R&D team for a very long period in, in my own company. And, and the initial part of it were coming from my own uh, PhD research because I knew that um, I, I need to be a, a, a credible researcher at that time. And I wanted to build a credible research team then mm. at my own startup. Mm. It almost sounds like uh, you were able to use your time in the PhD program as a kind of a training ground to train yourself to kind of transition to the Western entrepreneurial world with, you know, practicing presentation, practicing storytelling, practicing managing of conflicts, managing changes. Absolutely. If you haven't already done so, please listen to the previous segments in the show. We covered Yugoslavia in episodes 1 through 4, Brazil in episodes 5 through 8, the Middle East in episodes 9 through 12, US Virgin Islands in episode 13, and China in episode 14, and several anonymous narrators featured in episode 15. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes from the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast as we visit other parts of the world. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty-free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast 
on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.